The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Diane Ray, and thank you so much for being present with me today. Uh, whether you're spinning out there in the cosmos, listening to me live somewhere on the internet, or if you're listening to the podcast later, I'm so glad that you can tune in. So I know a lot of people that might be listening at work, you know, maybe you're sneaking your headphones in your cube there, stuck on the job, just trying to make a buck. Well, today's show is going to be perfect for you, especially if you're listening on the job. So I was doing a little research on, you know, the working world and, and jobs and, and that whole thing, because so many people out there are, are doing jobs that they just don't love. And I was reading some stats on this, you know, since 2000 Gallup, you know, the Gallup poll company, they've been polling employees from nearly 200 countries around the world about their level of job satisfaction. And it turns out that a lot of us are not really satisfied. 85% of workers worldwide hate their jobs and especially their boss. <laughs> so that's a lot of uh, unhappy people that are out there in the world. And it's really sad because you know, we spend the majority of our time during the day on the job. I mean, some of us even have like work families, you know, work husbands and wives, like people that we hang out with uh, during the day. So it's really important that we raise our level of satisfaction with this. So a lot of people might think the answer to this would be to start your own business and start working for yourself, you know, but sometimes there's a risk in that too. You know, only 80% of small business startups make it to the second year. So it's definitely a jungle out there in the working world. And my guest today is going to help us navigate all this and help us make money, be creative, be fulfilled all at the same time and navigate this crazy world out there. My guest today is David Nickturn, and he's a senior Buddhist teacher, meditation guide, and Emmy award-winning composer and musician. And he's written a fascinating new book that I've, I've been spending some time with here called Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. And today we're going to talk about how to really clarify our goals and dreams and make them happen in the real world. So I'd like to welcome him to the show. Thanks for joining me today, David. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Diane. It's good to be here with you. Well, I loved your story, and you're just a really interesting guy. <laughs> so I've been reading this book. <laughs> you know, you draw from a well of really diverse experience, and you're a professional composer, a guitarist, a producer, an entrepreneur, and you've worked with all kinds of amazing people like Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, which I'm a huge fan, uh, Jerry Garcia, Lana Del Rey, Christopher Guest. And Maria Muldaur, and I love this fun fact, I have to share this with people, that you wrote the song Midnight at the Oasis, which peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1974. And I, I do remember this song. <laughs> it's great. Um, so in addition to all of that cool stuff, you've also been teaching meditation workshops and how to integrate the spiritual and the secular into their business life. And a lot of times drawing from your own experience, which you share a lot in the book. So I guess the first thing, just kind of right out of the gate, is that, 
you know, why do people think that these two things have to be so separate, our, our work worlds and our, our other worlds? Well, Diane, I'm still, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, you sound great. Coming through? Okay, great. So I'm still stuck on the fact that you said 80% of the people in the world hate their jobs and their bosses. <laughs> That's an astounding statistic. And, it you is. Know, almost stopped my mind completely when you said that. So um, so why, why do we tend to bifurcate? I'm going to use the word bifurcation, you know, splitting in two our kind of inner life. Let's say, let's call it. I'm only using the word spirituality because I don't know a better word. But what I mean by that is our sort of inner life, our state of mind, our state of psychological and physical well-being, you know, the kind of thing that you cultivate maybe on a weekend workshop or uh, a retreat or uh, by practicing meditation or whatever else, uh, other kinds of practices you might do. And then you go to work on Monday after that. And why is that a completely different universe? (laughs) So um, I've been, you know, sort of studying this this split for about 45 years. The reason I'm into it is because I had to go through it myself. You know, I'm, I'm really um, <clears throat> I had to kind of ping pong back and forth between the kind of realm that you're talking about in the music production world and then studying Tibetan Buddhism very seriously at a certain point. So <clears throat> are we describing two completely different realities or is there something underlying both? Uh, which is continuous, you know, and and that you you could look at it as there's just one of you, there's one life, and bringing all the principles that you have together to to uh, make an integrated whole. So that's kind of my current uh, journey at the moment, and communicating about that, talking to people about that. That's that's sort of what I'm doing right now. And you've been studying uh, Buddhism and Buddhism uh, Buddhist philosophy for a long time since the early '70s, and particularly the uh, teachings of. Uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I knew I was going to mess up that that (laughs) name. And, you know, I even went on YouTube to hear it pronounced correctly. Um, But I was just curious at what drew you to the philosophy and and the study of Buddhism. Yeah, so that's always a good question. And I I think um, when people take on a pursuit like this, it's because they're drawn to it. That's, there's no replacement for that. You can't say, oh, you should do this or you should do that. So some people are drawn to, you know, Kundalini Yoga. Some people are drawn to uh, shamanism. Some people are drawn to Judaism or Catholicism. Um, so I think unless you feel some kind of connection with a particular tradition, it's going to be very hard to get into it. So for me, I was, uh, I was ripe just somehow from a very young age. I kind of think I might have had Buddhist leanings, you know, as a, even as a teenager, uh, and being exposed to certain things. And in particular, I was drawn to Asian culture. You know, I listened to Japanese music when I was 15 years old. I would I would listen to Imperial Court Japanese music and then listen to John Coltrane. You know, those that was kind of the, the, uh, the juxtaposition. So I started, I was in, going to the Berklee College of Music in Boston in 1970. And I was also starting to get uh, open to uh, the infusion of Asian and Eastern ideas coming into the West at that time, which was a big deal. And I was studying yoga at a yoga center. And then my, my teacher, Chogim Trungpa who was exiled from Tibet uh, and then made his way through India to the United States and was a very creative and innovative teacher, um, very, very well-known teacher. Um, and he somehow was able to assimilate the Western uh, kind of... Uh, uh, outlook, the Western view, very quickly. So he was speaking to us in our own language, English, and in our own terms. 
so I think that's what got me into it is meeting him really propelled and accelerated my interest in Buddhism as a whole. Yeah, meeting somebody who's well, really holding that teaching. Well, I love a lot of the philosophies and the practices of, of Buddhism, and I've been reading a lot about that myself over the past few years, and just the, the practicality of, of Buddhism, mm. I think, is, is really attractive. And you weave a lot of those teachings and philosophies and principles into the book, which is really interesting. So I have been spending some time with this and doing the exercises. And I love that the book is very experiential. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I mean, I've been doing a lot of the writing exercises. And I just wanted to ask you about the power of writing something down, which I think is, is really powerful when you put that out into the universe, either whether you're on a keyboard or just handwriting it in a journal. And what do you think about that, the, the power of actually doing something, that exercise? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a hierarchy in Buddhist teachings from mind to speech to body, embodiment. So those are the three sort of general areas of experience that you kind of re are relating to all the time. You know, the mind is vast, right? The mind is you can right now you and I could think about the San Francisco Bay Bridge and we're there. You know, our mind is expansive and vast can imagine anything. Um, when you move towards speech or expression or emotion, you're beginning to shape that into a kind of more, ex, uh, uh, you know, direct communication. And by the time it's embodied, you know, you're you're really you've brought it all the way down to the the earth level. And um, the the idea of writing down is going from the mind to the speech, which is the you know the words that you're thinking, and then you're putting it on paper, and it all of a sudden looks back at you and goes, "Hi, I've arrived. I'm here. I'm haunting you." I'm I'm mirroring you. I'm 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 showing you what you what you really are saying and thinking and feeling, which is why it's so cool to write a book. There it is. You know, I I've been reading my own book. It's 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 haunting me. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I say I better follow the principles in the book. You know, so I better read it. Uh, so so I think writing down is a way to connect your mind and your speech to the physical reality that you're in. And I do encourage people who are, like you mentioned, possibly entrepreneurs and people like that. I say, don't just keep it all up in your head. Begin to write it out, a vision statement, then begin to become strategic, and then a, a tactical plan. In that order, by the way. That should be the sequence. And write it down. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. You know, it's, it's uh, it, it, before you have go out and hire people or spend money or just uh, improvise as you go. See if you can come up with something cohesive on paper, similar to an architect's drawing, the relationship to an architect's drawing and making a building. You need the plan first. Right. And that is very powerful. And, you know, I did something like this, I guess it was 15 years ago or so, before I even knew anything about really the, the power of your mind or, or writing things down or vision boards or, or any of that stuff. And I, I had a, a therapist that I was seeing at the time ask me to write down you know, some goals and what I wanted. And I put it on just a spiral notebook and then threw it in a box mm -hmm. or something. And then, you know, sooner or later, I'm unpacking and, you know, I'll be damned if some of those things didn't happen. You know, not all of them, like the vineyard mm. in France, like that never happened. But some of the other things did, like I wrote clearly wrote down, you know, I want to be in a relationship. I want to work for a network. And, and that was before all those other things actually did happen. So it just kind yeah. of amazed me when I saw that later. Mm. Um, you know, and a lot of people have shared similar stories like that of actually writing it down. So <clears throat> I think that that's an, an important piece to do that. And well, in and the book, the, you know, the complement to that, 
sorry, just mm-hmm. jumping oh, in. Oh no, there. go ahead. The compliment to that <laughs> is focusing the mind in the first place, um, because probably the biggest obstacle most of us face is our own uh, the um, I call it sometimes ADD and OCD, not the clinical version, but from a Buddhist analysis, our mind is jumping around from topic to topic and in, in a kind of distracted pattern, uh, a scattered array. And then we're obsessing on little pieces of it, you know, uh, and then we're jumping off to another. So they call that frog mind in Tibetan. It's called kuntak in Tibetan frog mind. And the idea of doing mindfulness meditation is just an exercise to bring your mind together and focus it on one thing at a time. So that that is it. I, I, I present in the book, that's the absolute backbone of any kind of exploration is working with the mind itself before you go out and load up for bear and try to accomplish something or, or draw up a plan. Your mind is cohesive to begin with, and you keep working on that equation as you go. Right, and that's a practice to be sure. Yeah. That's something that you need to work on and be aware of, I guess, in practice. And I wanted to ask you about a term that, that popped up in the, in the book, uh, the word manifester that we've heard you know, over the past couple of years, I've seen it pop mm. up in different books. And, you know, people are saying, well, I want to be a, a, a manifester. I want to manifest things into my life. And I just wanted to get your definition of the, that term of manifester. Yeah. So there's a framework I use um, in, right in the first chapter of the book. It's called Joining Heaven and Earth. Could I, could I just talk about that for a minute? Because that really, yeah. I think, gives the framework framework for what you're talking about. So, and this goes back to speech, uh, mind and then speech and then body. Basically, manifesting is going from the mind level to the speech level down to the body level. So it's, we would call it embodiment. You, you, your actual physical reality shows the effect of something. So, for example, let's say you go to a gym and, and you lift weights. In the beginning, that's just an idea. Then you do the exercises. Now your muscles got bigger. That's manifesting. <laughs> That anybody can see it, it shows. So manifestation is moving again towards the body level, and in in this model that I use as a sort of core uh, um, model for uh, de- developing in, in yourself in the book, is called joining heaven and earth. It's a very ancient paradigm in Asia, in Europe to a certain extent, and um, it's simply this: heaven means you have a vast open sky of possibilities, which we believe that everybody does. It's not limited in any way. If you take a junior high school student, they could become anything. They could become the president. They could become a banker. They could become a, a, a plumber. The mind is, uh, the heaven principle is that it's, it's open and clear, and you can just kind of look at that, and in that level, you can imagine anything that you want to. So your imagination is free at the level of mind. But as you begin to bring it down, then you're joining heaven, that that open sky principle with earth, which is practicality, details, you know, literally like if you're making a garden, you know, all of a sudden there's worms, all of a sudden there's weeds, all of a sudden the tomatoes are not ripe and you have a hailstorm, you know, um, you're dealing in the realm of practicality. And the notion of enlightenment actually, or enlightened society, or any kind of um, prosperity or harmony or cultivation brings in a third principle, which is the human being. And the human being's job is to join heaven and earth, take that vast open principle, uh, that vast open space, and actually connect it with something tangible. And the point where it becomes tangible, we, we're calling that manifestation. Uh, it's a pretty good use of the word. You're, you're becoming a manifester. You, you plucked it out of heaven, and you're, you're uh, manifesting it on earth. So that's a basic paradigm that we use to sort of have that conversation. 
Well, along the way between the, you know, the, the heaven and earth and then the manifesting can really be a lot of shifting, adapting and changing because, yeah. you know, what if, so say my dream was, you know, I'm going to be a ballerina and that's what I want. Right. But, you know, well, what if that, you know, there's failure involved and what if that doesn't happen? And then the ability to be able to adapt to that. So maybe, okay, if I'm not going to be the prima ballerina, maybe I work with a ballet company in a different capacity or something like that, where I'm still around something I love, although not in what the original vision was. So I yeah. guess there has to be yeah. some kind of adaptability and, and able to, and the practicality like you're talking about, because maybe that, maybe it won't be exactly what, what you think it will be. And then there's it some will, failure along the way. It will never be exactly what you think it will be. Right. <laughs> and you, you're right. And usually it never is. You know, and then there are those setbacks and, and there are failure. And I and I love to ask people about failure because I think it's such a great teacher. You know, and so many times we start out doing something and it doesn't turn out the way we think it's going to be. And, and people get derailed, unfortunately, when you can learn so much at that point. And, and what do you think about that? I mean, do you think we learn more from situations that we hate and fail or that are situations that we love and it's a big success? Well... You know, that's so uh, potent what you're talking about, because uh, I have a whole chapter called Success and Contentment. So um, the basic point of the book, and I just want to be really clear with, with the folks out there, this is not a get-rich-quick book. It's not like, oh, success means you just get a big, fat, giant bank account and, uh, you know, only concerned with growth and, uh, you know, accumulation. That is not... Anyhow, that's not my definition of success. It might be somebody else's. But when you look at success, to define success on your own terms, that's the, that's the point, is what does it mean to you to, to become a, a successful person? And for a lot of people, it would have other aspects to it, like how are your relationships going? Uh, how's your family life? Um, you know, do you like where you live? Do you like your job? So um, success could be defined in, in uh, a, a lot of different ways. Um, and, and then the notion is that it doesn't just become a kind of helter-skelter, uh, you know, hyperdrive towards that, but along the way, you're actually tasting the experience. Uh, uh, and, and so what you're saying is exactly right. There's adaptation and adjustment. It's not, there's, you're not dealing with, uh, you know, with absolutes there. You're dealing with a kind of relative uh, evolution of something. So when it comes to failure, I'd say in the book, well, I... I I don't wish failure on anybody. That's you wouldn't you know if your if your uh, kid was going off to college you know and you said well I hope you fail <laughs> I hope you <laughs> flunk out you would never say such a thing right however all of us as we look back at our experience can easily recognize that failure it can be a tremendous teacher because it 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 it, it invites you to re to re up to re examine what what your premises are and it can soften you. And it can open you, and um, things like compassion uh, can flow out of uh, out of that. But it's it's more it's more redefining failure as a kind of uh, maybe not being so fixated on a particular outcome. That that's usually what fail failure is reminding you to to be fluid. Um, I, I remember um, I remember once on a, I think it was on David Letterman show or something like that. He said, um, you know, death is nature's way of telling you to let go. Right. <laughs> this is it. Just let go. I like you know, that. Yeah. So I mean, I, I could say for myself, I think I've probably learned more from the situations that 
that I've, I've hated are the ones that have been really challenging. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to ask you about that because just with your, you know, I don't want to say disparate. Is that the right word? Different backgrounds, you know, yeah, where you're highly <laughs> eclectic. Anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> highly eclectic. That's much better. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's experiences that, you, you know, I thought this was going to be great and it didn't work out, but then I met this great person as a result. So there, there were kind sure. of little yeah. things that you can pick out of that made it not just a total failure. You know, I guess the well, ability yeah, to, we, to we see We call those it obstacles things. as path. That's one of the expressions that we might use. Obstacles as path. I love that. I, th- I think that's that's so interesting. So and one of the so as I'm working through the exercises and I encourage everybody when you're reading the book and I hope you do pick it up and, and check it out because it's it causes you to think. And it got me thinking about a, a couple of different things that I'm going to ask David about. And so one of the exercises I did was clarifying our vision for our professional life. So mm. I'm, I'm writing it down and I did the exercise and I found it interesting when I got to the, how much money do you want to make category? So I thought about <laughs> this and I'm like, hmm, okay, I want to make $200,000 a year. And yeah. then I went back and I go, no, that's too much. Maybe I shouldn't make that much. And then I changed it. And then I went back again and I'm like, well, why am I limiting myself? Let me change <laughs> it again. You know? yeah, <laughs> so sure. then I, so I ended it as like, okay, this or something more. Like leaving it hard ended and hard or not hard ended, like leaving it open ended. Like, well, two hundred thousand a year would be great, but then maybe something will happen and I'll make more. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting that I did like that kind of like I looked at like the little mental gymnastics that I did about about the money part. Sure. And I think I'm not the only one that would have a hard time with that. Yeah, you looked at clouds from both sides. Yeah, <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. You looked at money from both. Yeah, it's a very interesting. I mean, I guess I've always been the kind of person who like probably gets is annoying because I ask obvious questions. I sometimes have been called the master of single entendre. You know, it's just like ask the obvious question and you go, well, at least it provokes if you went to get your hair styled and the, the, the your your hairstylist said, how, how, what what kind of haircut do you want? You go, I don't know. You know, I mean, well, you're going to get that kind of haircut. So the idea of just being able to tune in a little bit to these sort of very obvious realities, uh, and it's very interesting. Even if you don't know the answer right away and you have to fumfer around a little bit um, or you tweak it, you go, you know what? I'm undercutting myself here. I'm short cheating myself. I'm underselling myself. You might have that kind of recognition or um, I'm, I'm hopelessly unrealistic. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm working as a barber and I want to make four hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, I mean, right. <laughs> so, so it's tuning. I, I'm I'm a musician, so to me, it's about tuning your instrument. What's your instrument? Your body and your mind. That's your in, that's our instrument in this world. So you're tuning it so that when you go to play the song, it doesn't sound terrible. Right. <laughs> you know, which is your life. You know, it sounds like okay, this is reasonable. We have a nice pace here. Um, uh, you know, there's a nice uh, element of harmony, balance, uh, a little stretch between aspiration and reality. You should have a little tension there um, so you're not shooting too low or too high. Uh, uh, nothing I'm saying in here is, is science fiction as far as I'm concerned. It's really common sense. Yeah, I thought it was interesting where I felt guilty at first for wanting to make what I think is a lot of money, which would be $200,000 a year. But then I thought, well, why shouldn't I have that? So yeah, I was kind of looking, <laughs> looking at it, you know, from both sides. So now I'm just leaving it open, like, well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. And maybe it's, I, I think women generally, I mean, that's as a general term, probably 
have a harder time with that. And I, and I know for me that has been difficult over the years to ask for what I feel that mm. I'm worth sure. in the in the professional business world. And I think it's just something that you have to kind of work on and just get get comfortable with. Well, I don't know if you got to this chapter yet, but there's a chapter called Don't Negotiate Against Yourself. Yes. <laughs> which is really what that's about. In other words, let the other person do that. That's their right. job. So I've seen people, you know, because of a lack of confidence in a, in a negotiation, they'll undercut themselves unnecessarily. You know, so there's, um, if you just take some of these, slow, some of these are slogans in the book, and this is one of those, so never negotiate against yourself, um, is just a general, like, oh, the person gave you more than you think you're worth? Well, they must have thought you're worth it, you know? So why would you argue with them? <laughs> It's such an important chapter, and and I did I did get to that part, and it it struck me because it, it was just a situation that recently happened where mm. I was I was asked to do something, and I presented an amount for which I was I was paid to do this that same amount before, so I said okay, this is yeah. what I should get, and the other person came back with well, no, and then I thought, well, what do you mean no? Yeah, what do you, you know? mean no? So. <laughs> okay, well, I'll negotiate. I guess I'm asking for too much. So, so it's just it's just interesting, and I'm sure people will encounter that, uh, you know, along the way. Yeah. Um, and that and the question, I guess, of what what we're worth, you know, what do we think we're worth, is just kind of interesting. It's very like, interesting, your... and it's um it's it's not purely uh, professional. There's a lot of psychology underlying it, underlying those kind of uh, experiences. So that's why I'm saying, look. You might spend 20, 30 minutes a day with your meditation practice, and you should, because it's just going to set your clock for the, for the day and, and, you know, kind of center you. But then if it doesn't apply to the other 10 hours where you're at the office, and that's just a whole separate world with no sort of uh, interplay between those two experiences. So um, the, the thing is to just kind of create some kind of ground of, of focus and stability, which is what mindfulness meditation is supposed to do. It's supposed to increase the focus and the clarity and the kind of stability or balance in your state of mind. And I would say experientially and scientifically, it's been shown that it, it can easily have that impact if you practice regularly. But now you're at the office and you, you're, you're, everything that's happening is throwing you off balance, you know, including like a right. negotiation or something like that. So why not apply the same principles? You know, you just focus well, hold, on it. Hold that thought one second. We're okay. just going to take a short break for spots sure. okay. and we'll be right back with David Nickturn. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back after the break. I'm having a great conversation here with David Nickturn about his book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. You can make a buck and keep your integrity. And we're going to continue to talk about that uh, for the rest of the show here. And, you know, we can take a call if you'd like to join the conversation, 816 816- Two five one three five five five, if you so desire. And just before the break, we were talking about the importance of a meditation practice and kind of building that and sustaining that. And you know, boy, this is something that I've I've dealt with a lot over the past couple of years, and I I love 
you know, meditation and, and just like getting regularly sitting down, whether you're on the cushion or wherever you are, I, I guess it's just consistency is key, right? And and it doesn't have to be a, a 45 minute to an hour meditation. You could do a 10 minute, 12 minute or something like that. Uh, I mean, is that how it works for you? Like what what is your practice? Well, there, there's a slogan in the book that there are many benefits to mindfulness meditation, but none at all if you don't actually find the time to practice. Exactly. <laughs> so, That's so you know, true. So um, I, I'm working mostly with uh, people like myself who are very engaged with the world, you know, who are not renunciates, who are not, you know, going off and leaving the world behind, but actively engaged family people with good careers, good professions. So uh, my formula for the, that kind of person is 15 to 20 minutes a day. And even saying five times a week. So you don't feel like, oh, I missed a day. Now I'm going to, you know, now uh, I have to. I've fallen off the wagon. I have to stop altogether. A very reasonable approach and periodically doing longer sits, maybe on the weekend, sit for 45 minutes or an hour, occasionally do a weekend retreat or even a week retreat if you get serious about your practice. But that 15 to 20 minutes a day, um, five times a week, try that. Anybody who's listening who has said, I've never had a regular practice, but I've always wanted to just try that for the next month. It's really not a big, heavy requirement and see how you feel. I'm going to work on that. I need to get back to just the consistency, you know, like the 15, 20 minutes a day, because I like to do walking meditations Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of try to be mindful and aware of my surroundings where I'm walking. And and that's really helpful, too, I think. But you're right. Anything else is post-meditation experience. So once you establish that base of the 15 or 20 minutes of sort of, you know, very focused, mindful attention to the breath and to a specific technique and turning off your cell phones and, you know, really doing it right, then everything else can you, you, you mix mindful in, fi- mindfulness in with every other activity you do. If you're playing tennis, if you're cooking, you just bring your attention back, not to the breath, but to exactly what you're doing all day long with a very light touch of awareness and just coming back, coming back, coming back. That's a full practice. You do that. I'm, I'm, I can tell you personally, for me, my life is different when I do that and when I don't, period. Right. It and does. so is it for it, it every single student I've ever worked with. And you have some great resources, too. And I urge people to go to your site and, and check it out at davidnickturn.com. Um, you have some online courses out there and, and you regularly teach meditation. And if you do get a chance to do a retreat, you should do it. Um, I did one uh, last year uh, with a teacher here in California. And it was funny because one of the things that we had to do was get up at, at like 630 in the morning and do a meditation on the beach. And at first I was like grumbling, oh, I don't want to do this, you know, David G <laughs> making me get up and do this. But then when I got on the beach, I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. Why don't I do this every day? You know, I'm missing out. So it really does kind of open your eyes to, um, you know, take that time and, and you're right and just be mindful. It's great. So one of the uh, great teachers that I've worked with myself over the years, um, I worked with Dr. Wayne Dyer. Uh, for a long time. He was a great author and teacher, and and I worked with him for about eight years on his radio show. And he was great with quotes, like he could remember Mm. everything. And one of his favorites was Thoreau, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. And he would he would use this one all the time and, and whip it out all the time. And and I always and I loved it because I, I looked at the parallels with my own experience in my own life and I've kind of just like advanced in the direction of, of my dreams, 
maybe not really having a, a clear plan, but trying to to head in that direction. And and things kind of come, you know, like people have kind mm-hmm. of showed up or situations have showed up. And you have a great part in your book where you, you would call this the tendril, right? The synchronicity. Well, that's a Tibetan word for synchronicity or auspicious coincidence, auspicious, meaningful coincidence. I love tendril that. Is, tendril is a Tibetan word, but in English we would just say auspicious or meaningful coincidence. Well, that seems to be like how it's worked for me. <laughs> it's been mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, meaningful uh, coincidences. And I think maybe people are are not open to that or or they discount things or maybe they have such a set a set idea of how things are supposed to be. I was hoping maybe you could uh, elaborate a little bit on that, how we can work with that. Yeah. So um, auspicious coincidence is part of the natural world. You know, things are, you could say, if you just look around, p- things are happening synchronously. You know, um, you know you're writing a, a, a letter to a friend uh, and then somebody else calls you with a piece of information. That's all happening at the same time. So literally synchronicity means it's synchronized already. Things are happening sort of at, 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 a, at a moment by moment kind of level. But if we're not paying attention, we're not going to notice that. That's, it's not so much that we aren't trying. We literally won't notice it. Um, you know, if you're, um, uh, you know, let's say um, you're in a bar trying to meet a friend or something like that, and somebody else walks over to you, and this could be the person that is going to be your next employer. You don't know who that person is, but you're too focused on what you're doing there. So you don't sort of tune in as much to the sort of happenstance, the melody, what I call the melody of circumstances. So the first thing is just being slow enough to actually notice that around our intentional world, around our focused, directed world, there's a whole magical world that's uh, that's delivering all kinds of special treats, but we're too busy to, to kind of notice, tune into it, and, and, and um, do something with that information. So that's step one, you see. Um, then I would say step two is once something like that happens, you should lean into it a little bit. I've, I've, I make a real practice out of that. If something kind of extraordinary uh, or even lightly extraordinary happens, pay attention to it. You know, actually go go further into it. Um, if you meet somebody, uh, if 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 there is something special in the atmosphere of it, uh, make a point of following up on it. You know, if somebody um, you know comes up to you and says, "Oh, I've got a radio show," you know, and you're promoting a book, have the conversation. <laughs> right. You know what it's I mean? It's important. Like I could be sitting there in the bar and I'm thinking, well. You know, I have this book I'm promoting, but I'm really just here to relax and have a drink. And the person sits down right on the next stool, and they have the, a big radio show in this particular area. Well, pay attention, and then once you notice that there's something kind of slightly synchronous happening, uh, kind of explore a little further. So it goes beyond that. It goes to the point where they say that, you know, very highly realized beings, you know, with a tremendous amount of present awareness, this is almost the atmosphere in which they live, this kind of tendril. And, and I've seen that. examples of it. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. You're living in a very charged and very synchronous kind of way. And part of that is you just your agenda has been dialed down quite a bit so that you're not really only dealing with your expectation and disappointment, but you're actually paying attention to the whole, the whole situation. I see examples of that all the time, and it's just been very evident 
for me, you know, in, in my own life, but I tend to think of it as, oh, that's a big sign. And, you know, I, I make a big deal out of it to myself that yeah. that was a like a divine thing that was supposed to happen <laughs> when it maybe it could be argued that it was a coincidence. But I mean, taking note of it and, and working with it can make it that big divine yeah. thing, I guess. Well, and what so, about the middle way where it's not just kind of uh, irrelevant, but on the other hand, it's not this huge divine occurrence. It's just a little wink from the universe to you. And so you take it lightly and in stride, but you you include it. So I think a lot of what our, we teach in Buddhism is the middle way and, and you avoid extremes. So you can frame almost anything that way. Like when you're meditating, you could you could go, I'm going to rivet my attention onto the breath. And I'm going to just stay really hyper-focused and not allow any other thoughts to come. And that's too tight, right? That's just too tight. And on the other hand, you could just say, well, it doesn't really matter anyhow. I'm just going to lie down. A lot of the people these days in, in these meditations, they're lying down and just doing whatever the heck they want. It's really – I'm not sure why they – I think it's more they're just having a nap or a relaxation period. But there is something in the middle, which is a light touch of awareness and you know that that could be what a very good, not too tight and not too loose is a really good uh, rejoinder, just kind of all the way across the board. I like that moderation, right? Just kind yeah, of uh, yeah, keep keeping yourself in in that lane. That's yeah. so interesting. Now, also, I've been sending people to to your site, but I would love for them to listen to some of the interviews you've done in your podcast. And mm -hmm. you did a great one with Jamie Lee Curtis. I've always been mm -hmm. a, a big fan of hers. And, and she was talking about kind of this synchronicity that, that we're discussing, but she said it, it, it struck me what, how she kind of commented on this, that her way of, of working in the world as a creative person, everything that she's done has been an accident. And I yeah. thought, how can that be? You know, how, yeah. <laughs> how can it be just like an accident? And is that the same as what, what we're talking about with the synchronicity? Because it seems like with the yeah. synchronicity, you're recognizing it, but if it's an accident, you're just... Like, whoa, I'm falling into this thing. Well, look at like, it this is it, way. Is it subtle you, and I, you and I talking today is a total accident. This conversation's an accident. E even though I set it up? <laughs> well, yes. But from my point of view, it's like, oh, I got an email. I, I don't know who this person is. And, uh, well, let's just have a chat. You know, let's see what happens. So I think when we say accident, we don't mean like usually you think, oh, a train accident or a car accident. It's a bad thing. What she meant was that there's a kind of just um, – I'm going to keep saying melody of circumstances. You know, I think that phrase is really – the circumstances begin to just have their own kind of phrasing and uh, happenstance to it. So what she was specifically referring to, even though both of her parents were movie stars, it hadn't occurred to her to be an actress. That wasn't what she right. set out to do. She was going to – in fact, she was going to college for police work. She was studying to be like <laughs> in, in the police force. I said, oh, well, you played a cop in one of your later movies, so it wasn't a total waste, you know. Um, and, and, and then she just said she got a call during a, a, a semester break, and they wanted to come in and read for a part. And, uh, you know, she did. And, you know, it's just she went along with the invitation of the thing, and it just took her on a trajectory. So um, I don't think she means, you know, it's kind of like I have no idea what happened, you know, like a, a car accident, somebody – uh, Rex, you know, hits you from behind and smashes you through through the windshield. Not like that. More like just bumping in to people and cir and circumstances and situations, and just sort of being light enough on your feet to go like, maybe I'll just sort of go along with this a little a little bit, you know, and and see what right. see what's happening. But I just want to say one last thing about that. You have to mix that with intention and effort. 
otherwise, it's if you're just waiting around for the magic to happen, you're going to be uh, kind of um, missing the boat from the other side of the boat, which is that once that happens, you have to marry it to some kind of actual exertion and intention and effort, which she certainly did. You know, it's not right. like she said, well, I'll show up. I won't learn my lines because I got well, the part through magic. So I don't really maybe through magic. I'll learn my lines and my my spotting of where I'm supposed to stand when and where. And I'll, I'll skip the makeup process. I don't really need that, you know. So it's it's really a kind of hybrid of of a, of a melody of circumstance and then mixing with discipline. Right. No, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about intention, because I think that's really an important concept to understand in business and in life. And you know, and when you're talking about magic, you know, Carlos Castaneda said that intention can make a shaman go through a wall and you know into infinity. And mm. I don't know if, if that if that's really if that's really true. Maybe it is. But I mean, well, I think it, intention take is it as a metaphor, anyhow. Yes, yes. Like, wall, and, and, I, and I always an like that. Yeah. And and you're right, exactly. Like, but and I but I think a lot of people, you know, they always say the what is it? The road to something's paved with good intentions. The road to hell is that? Yeah, it? the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But how can yeah. that be if your intentions are good? I guess because I've always felt like. Intention to me has always been strong. Like I've always had the intent. I want this to work out or I want this to be good or I want it to be something. My, my intention, I think, is always, quote, good. Yeah. But, but sometimes well, so, so we, it doesn't we work mix, out. <laughs> you know, there's a chapter in the book called Clarity, Intention, and Effort. So everybody usually has an entourage. Any wisdom has an entourage, right? So it's not just intention, but you have clarity and intention. So if your intention is... Um, not mixed with clarity, you might really mean to, you know, it's, <laughs> you think about the, um, the w blind woman standing on the, on the, on, on, at the street crossing, right? And you have this wonderful intention, you want to help her get to the other side. Um, and then you sort of help her across the street, and you kind of like, she's a little bit resistant, so you figure she's a little fragile. So you really give her a strong help across the street. Your intention was perfectly good. You thought you were helping the person. But but then you get to the other side. She says, I wasn't trying to cross the street. Right. So there was not <laughs> enough clarity there. That's what was missing was clarity. Yeah. Um, and so if you couple things together, you often get a very nice package of, of kind of effective ways of being in the world, you know. Right. And then back back to the middle way again, like like you yeah. were saying, you yeah. know, kind of trying to find the uh, the middle ground in that. So another interesting exercise in the book that I did was identifying and releasing habits. Mm -hmm. It was kind of after I read read about intention and then I thought, OK, well, I have good intentions, but maybe some of my habits are are holding me holding me back. So I wanted to share some of my my bad habits with with you in the world of some things that I'd like to release um, in moving forward with some projects that I'm working on. And I guess it was interesting. Some of the ones that came up jealousy, you, know, mm -hmm. you think, wow, I, how am I, you know, dealing with that? Shouldn't I have gotten over that in high school? No, it still re rears its head, you know, um, competition or the dreaded FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. Am I doing mm. something wrong or has someone else figured it out better than I have figured it out? And how have you ever grappled with with those things? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, <laughs> in in um, in the first book I wrote, which is called Awakening from the Daydream, it's a portrait of the six realms, which is a traditional Buddhist uh, way of looking at the different styles of engaging the world. And um, you know, one of them is based on competition and envy. 
So when you look at energies like that from a Buddhist point of view, you also look at the flip side. That's the best way. So what's the flip side of, uh, of um, competition, for example? Well, you're going to train yourself. You're going to use that information to go, I need to improve my game here. And there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, let's say you see a great guitar player. I see somebody playing guitar. I go, oh, my God, you know, th- th- this person, I'm so, I wish I could play like that. Well, the answer is you could play like that, but you're going to have to practice a whole lot more. So there's an enlightened, you could say there's an enlightened side to every, every kind of um, neurotic form of energy has a, has a flip side to it. Uh, and that's what we call transformation. It's, you're not throwing anything out, but you're kind of liberating it from, uh, from the most uh, un, unproductive aspect of itself. So, you know, that's an interesting thing, like uh, competition, envy, jealousy. You're actually admiring, the, the heart of that is you're admiring somebody's accomplishment without really realizing it. And then you're comparing it to yourself. And instead of using that information to improve yourself, you're using it to beat yourself up. And mm. that's what could Ooh, change. You're right. Good point. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yes, it, it does. It does, actually. Um, because where, right, instead of being jealous of that other person, I could, you know, be gentler with myself and not, you know, not beat myself up for, oh, that person's thinner than me or younger or any of those, any of those things. Yeah. Yeah, we can never get younger. That's the one thing. <laughs> you can get thinner, <laughs> right. but you can't get younger. But you can certainly feel younger. I can tell you that's for sure. Um, I I think that um, we're, from a Buddhist point of view, we're, we like to, you know, the two principles I introduced in the beginning of the book is as it is and up to you. Those are the two core principles of the book. Reality is as it is. If you jump up in the air, um, you're going to come back down. It's, it's called gravity, it's, and it is what it is, and you can spend a lot of time in a transcendental meditation retreat trying to hop up and see if you can levitate. Uh, I can't think of a bigger waste of time as, as opposed right. to just going, okay, I'm just going to go with gravity. Gravity has, you, you know, gravity is a tremendously empowering principle if you're synchronized with it. So, um, you know, that, that idea of, of, of as it is, things are the way they are. And if you just go along with that, you're going to be a lot happier immediately. And then it's up to you. It's not really nobody else can come along and say, um, you know, we read a million diet books. I was thinking of writing a Buddhist diet book called Mindful of the Pie Hole. And just be aware. <laughs> just be aware of what you're putting in your face. Right. <laughs> How about awareness as a piece of a diet uh, thing? That's the biggest missing piece. That, that's a title whose time has come, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like yeah, that. That's a good yeah. one. Um, an- another thing that we could contemplate a little bit, like a- along those lines, would be, you know, the the idea of impermanence, you know, talking yeah. about like you can't control aging and that kind of thing and, and yes. letting go of the outcome. Um, like I'm working on kind of a new a side venture or side hustle, you know, as the, the kids are calling it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to although I'm trying and I have the good intentions, like, like we just talked about of, of what I want this to be, I don't know what it's going to be yeah, or, or if it's going to work. So, I mean, that's, that's a tough call for a lot of, you know, type A control freaks out there. Well, impermanence is absolutely one of the most profound topics. There are really two big topics that are almost, uh, you know, indelibly imprinted in the Buddhist view of, of life. One is impermanence, and you know there, you won't find a Buddhist teacher who's not going to talk about that and try to relate to that principle. And the other is the notion of self. 
And that one's been kind of mutilated, basically, beyond recognition by some language translation problems and misunderstandings, that there's no such thing as a self. That is a completely not accurate rendering of the, of the doctrine. There's no such thing as an immutable self, uh, from a Buddhist point of view, a permanent self. There's no such thing as a self that is independent of other aspects of reality. It's, it exists interdependently. And there's no such thing as a self that has a kind of singular identity unto itself. Everything is, um, you know, you can break it down. You know, you go like, okay, well, you've got hair, you've got eyeglasses, you've got, you know, you just break it down into the component parts. It keeps getting smaller and smaller. Now, at a relative level, though, you're a person who has a house, right? I'm assuming you have a house somewhere, an apartment? Yes. You have a car? in it. Yes. You have keys (laughs) to the car? (laughs) Keys to the car. Yeah. You have, you know, I'm sure a hairstylist. You, I'm sure you have an optician. Uh, you know, I'm sure you have a doctor. You know, why, why have all that if you don't have a self? <laughs> right. It, does, it doesn't you know, make sense. Yeah. It's, it's just that self is a relative phenomenon. It's not an absolute phenomenon. So that's really important. Those two things, impermanence and self, we just take them too seriously. We take ourselves no, too do. seriously. So that's a cha- that's a chapter title, um, understanding the the relative nation, nature of the self, and you know going along with the flow of being somebody, but not not trying to like lock and load all, all the time, and and then get you know super uptight about you know uh, when things change, you know. Well, I like your breakdown on that because I've read um, so many other teachers in the past kind of trying to describe the ego, which I guess you could say is yourself, and yeah. they're like, well, yeah. you have to beat down the ego and. And I'm like, yeah. well, why, why do you want to do that? I mean, isn't it good to have a sense, a strong sense of, of who you are and a, a sense of self? I mean, I guess you can go all different ways with that where, oh, well, if your ego is just so inflated, you have a, you know, unrealistic view of that, then I guess th- things could get confusing. But I, I like yeah, your explanation yeah, in, of In that. Buddhism, they would, I think we would say it's a distorted sense of self. Ego is... Ego distorts the importance of the self, and maybe like the Dalai Lama would say, self-cherishing. Like you're you're so desperate and you're so needy to have this identity that you kind of like create all kinds. You work way way too hard to maintain that, and therefore you're you're really not in the flow with everything around you that's happening. Uh, but I don't think it's a it's not nihilistic in the sense that most people think of it. Oh, there's no self. So there's this one great uh, thing on this. Uh, uh, Jewish uh, humor, I saw Jewish Zen humor. If there's no self, then whose arthritis is this? <laughs> that's the that's the mother, the that's Jewish mother of the, of the kid who goes off to the zendo, and he's writing. There's no self, ma. You know, if there's no self, then whose arthritis is this? <laughs> that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. And you you described yourself in the in the beginning of your book as as a Jubu, right? A a Jewish Buddhist. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of millions of them, I think. Yeah, like, I know my husband's like a Jew theist, I guess. He's more like a Jewish atheist, but he makes a yeah. mean matzo ball. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's I, another, I don't practice Judaism, to be clear. I don't yeah. practice in that, and there's not a lot of the views that I hold, but, you know, I look at it as a cultural uh, cultural assignation, um, like I being Southern or too. something like that, you know. I said to tease you a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we just have like a, a couple of minutes. I mean, there's there's so many things that I could I could chat with you. I bet we could just talk talk for hours. I mean, there's great information in this book. Really, you know, exercises to help you kind of clarify your ideas, put it down on paper, to you know really work in the world and love and love your work, 
and there's even a whole section of where you could keep maybe your calling and your job separate and that's okay too right i mean if you're yes yeah you're offering it doesn't there, have to a, be there's a thing of finding your offering which is important i think what are we offering back to the universe um, and what's your offering but then there's a second tier decision which is is that your livelihood or not and once you say yes that's my livelihood then there's whole other sections of the book you have to read because uh, or or have to relate to principles um, so if you say yes I'm a songwriter like I know a lot of songwriters you know and and I'm gonna say are you gonna make are you gonna pay your rent based on that and then they say well yes I want to uh, but and I say, where are you working right now? And they said, yeah, this restaurant over on 34th Street. <laughs> you know, there, there's something that's been missed there, which is how do you generate a livelihood from that activity? And that's based on understanding some business principles that don't change from, uh, you, you know, business principles are really pretty indelibly uh, inked in terms of like they're almost like gravity. You know, things like cash flow and understanding planning and, uh, you know, understanding marketing and sales and things like that. So there's a whole section of the book that's really about, okay, if you do want to relate to the principles of business, let's respect them. First of all, let's not think of it as a cop out or something like that. Um, I can guarantee you the successful songwriters know those principles. Right. It's it's important. I mean, I think everybody who's got that idea germinating or, you know, they're maybe they're doing the side hustle and they're their paid gig and they want to make the side hustle their main thing. And there are steps, you're right, that you need to take to do that. And the book lays it out. And David, it's been so great to talk with you. We're just wrapping up, but I want people to check out your site. Again, it's davidnickturn.com and keep in touch with you and, and see what you're doing. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Diane. Nice talking to you too. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.